We're all products of the place where we grew up. No matter where we end up, we're all from the place we call home. Bobby Sanabria likely would be a great musician no matter where he grew up. But he's a guy from the Bronx in New York City, through and through. And it comes through in his music, on stage, in the studio, in the classroom, everywhere. Welcome to Before the Cheering Start. I'm Bud Michigan. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The first jobs, obstacles overcome, the doubt, plan B's, and the passion to push forward. Bobby Sanabria wears a lot of hats. Percussionist, conductor, composer, teacher. He grew up in the Bronx in the 1960s and 70s, a hard time for the borough. But it was a time when he heard a ton of music, great music, in his home, in the neighborhood, in the Bronx, in the entire city, on the radio, and in clubs. Lots and lots of music. And those influences continue to inform the work he does today. His new album is called Vox Humana by the Bobby Sanabria Multiverse Big Band. And that's where we began our conversation. Bobby, congratulations on the new CD. You've been doing this for quite some time. Are there still moments where you discover new things musically? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and I, I, I'm a senior citizen. I just turned 65 and people, some of my colleagues t- talk about, well, once you get past 40, you've done everything you, you, you're uh, going to do and you're gonna, you've evolved already in terms of being a musician. You're not really going to evolve much more, but I'm still evolving. I'm still growing. I'm still thriving. Uh, st- uh, from the striving and I'm still learning. So it, it's a great journey and, and it hasn't ended yet. It's in can, a sense, it's almost beginning now. Can you point to something on the new CD that, oh, you know, either I, I haven't done that before or my band hasn't done that before or I wanted to do a little bit more of that and we're exploring that on the new record. Some of the Brazilian music that we did, that we recorded on the new CD. There's a couple of tunes, uh, a song called Amazonas, uh, and a song called Partido Alto, which are different in character, each one. One is more of what we call a bossa nova, and the other one is Partido Alto is actually that rhythm. That's the name of the rhythm, besides the name of the title of the song. It's a type of funkier uh, variation on samba that uh, not many people play, but we explored it in a big band context on this new record. And my love of Brazilian music goes to my back to my father, which is another story maybe we can get into. Yeah. Sure, let's let's go to it. Uh, the music that was being played in your house growing up in your home, uh, did you hear all sorts of influences? Yes, I was very lucky. My father was very eclectic in his tastes, He's very cosmopolitan. He was a working class guy, he was a machinist. And then later on in life, he started working for the United States Postal Service, but he was a machinist primarily. He, uh, as I said, had very cosmopolitan taste in music. He would bring home things like James Brown, Sex Machine, <laughs> uh, <laughs> things like uh, uh, Eight Miles High by by the Birds. Uh, of course, we listen. All of us listened to the Beatles when 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 they came out on the scene. But also all the great Latin music from the three most fantastic orchestras that have ever existed: the Machito Afro-Cubans, Tito Puentes Orchestra, Tito Rodriguez, and also folk music from 
my ancestral homeland, Puerto Rico. But he also listened to Mexican rancheras, light opera, uh, Harry Belafonte live at Carnegie Hall. I remember that uh, album clearly because I was fascinated by the double entendre uh, calypso songs. But in any case, one day he brings home a 45 of Sergio Mendes and Brazil 66's version of Mashkenada. And I was fascinated by it so much that I kept putting that 45 on over and over again. My mother uh, in Spanish told, I remember her telling my father, something must be wrong with your son. <laughs> <laughs> you know how your mother's always yeah. say that? And uh, she goes, what? What's wrong? And she goes, he keeps playing that record over and over again. Maybe he's autistic or something, you know. Uh, uh, and she was serious. So I would be listening to the song and, uh, and intently and I put my ears next to the speakers, picking out the drum set pattern, the piano pattern, the bass pattern, etc. And I fell in love with the lyricism of the language, which I didn't know at the time was Portuguese. So my father was watching me again, listening to the song. He starts laughing, not laughing, but, you know, smiling. I noticed him and, and I and I said, Pop, is there anything wrong? And he goes, why do you like the song so much? He goes, I don't, I go, I don't know. You know, like it's just grabs me or whatever. And, and the language, I, it's, it sounds like Spanish, but it isn't. So he started, he get, he says, get the globe. So I get the globe because the reason you like the music so much is because of the rhythm. And you know where the rhythm comes from? It comes from this place. And he points to Africa. Mm -hmm. All the rhythms that we have in, in our culture come from Africa. Like our language, it comes from this place, Spain. And then you go, and what they're singing in is in Portuguese, which just sounds similar to Spanish, but it isn't Spanish. And it comes from this country, Portugal. And so then I said, well, how do we get the rhythms from Africa? And he starts explaining to me about the transatlantic slave trade. And I'm nine years old. To make a long story short, then he goes, uh, and that's why, it, uh, you know that your grandmother, my mother is, is black of, of color that's why she's of color because she has african blood in her and we, that means you have it too and we have it in our culture because of the music and the rhythms and all the rhythms are different in all the different places cuba puerto rico brazil etc but the common bond is africa so that's why you should be proud of that and not disparage anybody who's uh of african descent because you're of african descent it's quite a lesson yeah. for a young for a young boy to hear. Was that an ongoing conversation with your yeah, dad? Because, yeah, because he, I would listen to what he listened to because it took him two hours to get to work and two hours to get back from work because he worked in Valley Stream, Long Island. So his ritual was to sit in this lazy boy chair, smoke a cigarette, and drink a Schaefer beer because he the Schaefer was the sponsor of the Yankees at the time. Right. So my mother would say, if you want to sit sit down in the living room with your father and do your homework while and and while he'd be listening to what he would be listening to so he like i said he'd be listening to harry belafonte sergio mendez uh whatever count basie Ahmad jamal i mean i was getting a pretty sophisticated musical upbringing without even knowing it and then at the same time I'm the last generation that got to see great jazz artists on tv like count basie duke ellington buddy rich and many others, Louis Armstrong, because of shows like the Ed Sullivan Show. And then all the cartoons had jazz in them. All the Hanna-Barbera cartoons 
the guy later on I found out his name was Hoyt Curtin. He was a jazz pianist. He wrote the theme for the Jetsons, the Flintstones, Johnny Quest. Uh, I love the theme from Johnny Quest. It's still the hippest uh, <laughs> musical theme for a cartoon that's ever existed. So I'm a product of my environment. And and luckily, my father, Jose, he was the one that exposed me, opened the door for me to the multiverse. And I'll always uh, thank him for that and love him for that. And he lives on in this out al new album in many ways because it's very autobiographical, the entire album. How lucky were we to have fathers who were teachers as well? Yeah, he, my father should have been a teacher. He loved history. My love of history comes from him as well. He'd have great conversations with people about history. He was always, he was an avid reader. I inherited that from him as well. So uh, he lives on in me and, and in this new album in many, many ways. And my mom too, you know, because, because of my mom, I went to the Berkeley College of Music because I wanted to go to the school and you had to get the papers signed. I don't know how it is today, but in those days you had to get written permission from your parents if you were a minor in high school to leave New York state to go to college in, in another state. So when I told my father, he had to sign these papers for me to go to college to leave, he was all surprised at everything and he freaked out and he started going, what do you mean? I thought it was just a passing fancy, you being a musician. Meanwhile, I had been gigging since I was 14 already professionally. And he, no, don't leave New York, you can stay here and go to college have something study something else for, for you can fall back on that the music business is you know trepidatious and this, he said all this stuff my mother's looking at him and in spanish everything sounds more dramatic in spanish she said to him very bluntly listen joe my father's name was jose if you don't sign the papers for your son to fulfill his destiny and his dream i'm divorcing you and i'm serious and she was, and there was like a lull of about 10 seconds. And finally he goes, Dame la pluma, which means in Spanish, which meant it's from Spanish to English. Give me the pen. Hmm. He signed the papers. So my mother Juanita, you know, was also a big part of this new album. God bless her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How old were you when you saw Tito Puente in your neighborhood? The concert was, in your neighborhood? I was 12 years old. He, uh, there was, at that time period, as you well know, New York City was bankrupt. The city was in chaos, especially the South Bronx was burning. Landlords were burning all the buildings for the insurance money. The city got some a lot of private funding from uh, donors like the Rockefellers and many others to, to put on concerts. Kind of like to, you know, mute that... that that phrase, that old saying, music soothes the savage beast kind of a thing. So they would put on these concerts in the neighborhoods to to alleviate the tension that was going on in, in the poorer neighborhoods in New York City. And so they started building a stage on East 153rd Street and Cortland Avenue, right in front of the project building that I lived in, 681, in the Melrose Houses. And uh, I was... Uh, I was on the ninth floor of my friend Marvin Matei's apartment because we could see right where everybody was. You know, it was like a mini Woodstock. People started gathering around. Hey, what's going on? There's going to be a concert here, et cetera. The New York City Department of Parks is setting up the stage. I lived on the 12th floor on the other side of the building, so I couldn't see. So Marvin 
you know, called me and said, hey, you can see it from here. So we would, and they started performing. It was the Machito Orchestra. Can you imagine that? The Tito Puente Orchestra and Ricardo Ray and Bobby Cruz. Ricardo Ray was from Brooklyn. He was a virtuoso pianist, Juilliard trained, Puerto Rican. Uh, and his singer was Bobby Cruz, who had this beautiful uh, tenor voice. Anyway, they had the hottest salsa band at the time. And Doc Cheatham, the great jazz trumpet player from New Orleans, was playing in his group at the time. And his timbala player, Candido Rodriguez, lived in my building. And his wife, Mona, used to do my mother's hair. <laughs> so he was a local hero. So he was playing in that group. But when I saw Machito, man, forget it. And then I, you know, and they're doing, Dale jamón a la herba, escomelona, esco, great mambo. And then the sax is standing up. It was so majestic. And then Tito Puente, vamos, rumbero que la rumba ya va a empezar. That song he wrote in 1955, he does it and he takes this explosive timbala solo. He points to the saxophones, they stand up. I mean, I go, man, this is what I want to do. And and mind you, we were watching from upstairs, and I had told Marvin, let's just go downstairs. He goes, no, let's stay up here. We can still stay up here. We could throw spitballs at people if we want, you know. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 we got to go downstairs. So we went down, went through the crowd, and got right up close to the. Uh, all three orchestras performing. And when I saw Tito, that that was the coup de grace because I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I had already been interested in music uh, from being a street drummer, playing in the rumbas in the parks and everything. And that time people would play conga drums in all the neighborhoods that were Hispanic in New York City, Spanish Harlem, the South Bronx, South Brooklyn, um, in Central Park, et cetera. Uh, and so it was part of the culture. Uh, uh, I always say I was born into this. Uh, not that everybody that's born into it, into the culture becomes a drummer like I did or a musician in terms of playing other instruments, but I had a proclivity for it and I had a talent for it. So uh, it was nurtured in that neighborhood that I grew up in the South Bronx and that time period. And with my father exposing me to all this stuff uh, and the die was cast between watching Tito Puente live and seeing Buddy Rich on TV live. It was just, you know, it was it was a great childhood that I had, even though it was a very traumatic one at, at, at times as well. I, I like many people from that time period, I'll, I'll, I'm not ashamed to admit it that I've, I've, from growing up in the South Bronx at that time period, I had PTSD. And it manifested itself occasionally in certain ways. Uh, you know, not trusting people, always looking over your shoulder, you know, exploding. Somebody triggers you and you get, you know, mad instantaneously or whatever. And then you have that New York City radar that all New Yorkers are, are, are bio biologically have that you can smell bs and jive a, a mile away you know so so but uh the flip side of that was the incredible childhood musically that i that i had was the music an escape for you in that sense oh yeah most definitely most definitely it, it was an escape for my father as i said before he'd sit there just go into another world we had one of the few, in those days, turntables had 33, 45, and 16. 16? 
Yeah. I've heard 78, but never 16. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, you had 78 too, but uh, 16 was, uh, they used to use that for these record recordings that came out in the 40s that were larger than an LP. Wow. And were issued by the government during the recording ban uh, in the in 1940s. And they were for mostly recordings that were played slowly on radio. So uh, I would slow down the records that sometimes so that I could pick out things, you know, like the drum patterns sure. and, and all that kind of thing. So it was it was it, it was great that we had that turntable like that. But but my father, um, God bless him, man. He 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 would go to another world, which I called now the multiverse, and and he exposed me to that. God bless him. So you go off to Berkeley College of Music, one of the great musical institutions in the country. Are you nervous? Are you confident? Uh, do you have doubt? All of the I'm, above? I, I, well, I, I, it, it was all of that. It, it didn't it, it didn't get past me that I was a kid from the South Bronx. I was a New Yorker and I was from the projects. And I, when I got there, I met people the first week, you know, my age that had been studying music since they were kids, like taking lessons since they were like eight years old, seven years old, nine years old. I had never taken a private drum lesson, music lesson at all. Though Mr. William Ryan, my high school band director, was a, a person, another person that helped to change my life. He, when uh, he found out that I wanted to go to Berkeley and he go, and me and this gentleman, David Carmona, who played trumpet, who was of Costa Rican descent, we were both in the high school band at Cardinal Hayes in South, the South Bronx. He said, you guys will never pass the audition. You don't know any theory. Do you know what a Dorian scale is, a Phrygian scale? You know what a harmonic minor scale is or whatever? And we're looking at him, no. <laughs> and he goes, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. Stay out of trouble. And on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I'll give you a, a theory lesson after school. And he did that. And that's how we were able to pass the entrance exam and the audition to the Berkeley College of Music. So uh, I have him to thank supremely. And then when I was at Berkeley, I was, like I said, I, I met drummers that had been studying, had been in marching bands and things like that since they were 10, 11, 12 years old. I mean, forget it that uh, knew way more musical theory than I did. But I had desire, I had talent, and I had something that they didn't have, that upbringing growing up in the South Bronx in New York City, being exposed to all those incredible Afro-Cuban rhythms that, that were part of every Puerto Rican's life during that time period, because salsa was ubiquitous. And at that time, New York City radio was incredible. We mm -hmm. had WNEW, the powerhouse FM rock station, WBLS. Their moniker was the Total Black Experience in Sound. WLIB, WABC, which was the powerhouse rock, I mean, pop station, and WMCA, the good guys. I, I remember all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Cousin Brucey, uh, all, the, all those, you know, uh, Dennis Elsis on uh, WNEW. Jonathan Schwartz, the program director at WNEW, he was a, a trip because he loved 
Frank Sinatra and he loved Tito Puente. So he'd play something by Yes and Proco Harem. And then the Allman Brothers, and then he'd go, and now the Tito Puente, the now the Count Basie of Latin music, Tito Puente, out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what? Who does that? And then maybe Frank Sinatra. I mean, but at that time, FM was a new medium. There weren't right. that many commercials, and the program directors could do whatever the hell they wanted. So they had that kind of eclectic, eclectic taste. Then listening to the radio, I mentioned people like the those bands that I just mentioned, Proco Harum right. and the Allman Brothers. I I listened to all that stuff when I was a kid. And I didn't and I liked it. It wasn't a thing where oh, I'm just into yeah. salsa and jazz. That's it. No. Those formative years of mine listening to the progressive rock music that was happening at the time. See the, the difference between the popular music of yesterday and today. And I happened to just grew up in the the exact right time period. I, I was born in 1957. So I caught the tail end of doo-wop. I caught the beginning of Motown. I caught the British invasion. I caught the time period when jazz was still part of the fabric of mainstream America. Uh, and uh, that, that kind of uh, cosmopolitan sophistication that was represented by larger than life characters like uh Sean Connery as playing 007 James Bond <laughs> that was all part of the 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 mix at that time and then Woodstock right. I caught that and and all that was all reflected in the radio in New York City at the time and I was the beneficiary of that so <clears throat> you would hear me I You'd see me walking down the street, and I might have a, a Tito Puente album in one hand and a John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra album in the other, or Miles Davis and Bitches Bruce. So that was that was my upbringing. And uh, people ask me all the time, how, how do you know about all these different styles of music? I said, man, that's the way I grew up. Yeah. Can you tell me, uh, I've always been intrigued by the story of when you get to Berkeley, you're there, and then you get an offer to go on tour, I believe, with uh, Al Dimiola. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you're still in school, and your decision, I'm going to stay in school. Why? Well, uh, it was very gratifying. I got a phone call from Rafael Cruz, who's no longer with us. Rafael Cruz, great uh, percussionist. He was of Dominican... And uh, he was of, I believe he was half Dominican, half Cuban, but he grew up in the Dominican Republic. And then he eventually moved to Puerto Rico and then eventually to New York City. And he be started doing a lot of work in New York City with various mainstream jazz artists as a percussionist. So I got a somehow he got my phone number. And in those days, in the dormitory at Berkeley, there was just a phone in the hallway and it would ring. Somebody would pick it up. They'd say, hey, I need to speak to Bobby Sanabria. And they'd knock on your door. Hey, Sanabria, you got a phone call. And you walk to the phone. And so it was him. And he says, listen, Dal Demiolo needs a timbala player. Do you want to, Do you want the gig? Your name came up. Do you want the gig? And I was like stunned. Because I know who Al Demiolo was. And he was the hottest jazz rock guitar player at the time, along with John McLaughlin. And... Uh, I just said, uh, after like five seconds, and the guy, he goes, hello, you still there? I go, listen, uh, 
thank you so so much it's i'm really gratified but i want to stay in school uh, i have a goal and, and that goal is to be a well-rounded musician and and a, a legitimate jazz drummer you know i'd said all that flowery stuff and he and ralph to his credit kind of was taken aback and he kind of laughed at the same time and he goes okay no problem man i understand completely and that was it so then i told my some of my friends who were there in the dorm who was that man and i heard al dimiola's name and they and then when i told them i turned on the gig they go what are you crazy man? <laughs> you know what the hell is wrong with you but if i if i would have done that i wouldn't be the musician that i am today and i wouldn't be talking to you so i made the right decision at the time it felt Believe me, it, it, I, I uh, felt like a schmuck, to use an old Yiddish term, uh, for about a, a, a week. But then, uh, as I kept progressing as a, in my knowledge base at the school, I, I realized I had made the right decision. You were coming from the South Bronx, so you were hardly, and New York City, so you were hardly innocent in terms of the world and bigotry but were you prepared for some of the things that you faced in terms of racism in boston no because i hadn't faced racism like i did in boston now, you know i hear occasional when i was growing up in the south bronx on morris avenue that was a basically italian the italian uh section in in uh, the south bronx and uh I remember growing up when I used to get, my mother used to give me money, go to the Italian deli and get, you know, this, that, and the other, get a quarter pound of this, get a quarter pound of that. And I would tell her sometimes, Ma, you know, can we go, isn't there another place? No, they got the best meat and cheese. So you get to the corner and sometimes you hear disparaging remarks. Hey, what are you doing here? You spit, get back to the projects, you know, that kind of a thing. A couple of times I got bottles thrown at me. Uh, you know, and, and I remember I used to tell the deli guy, you know, hey, can you just watch me when I leave the door? Can you watch when I, so I could get to the corner back to, so I can make the, the turn on East 153rd Street. So, I, you know, I wouldn't get hit with a bottle or something like that. But that was a common thing back then. It was, New York City was very territorial. The The resurgence of gangs in the South Bronx had started in a big, in a big way. So that was part of my life. But when I got to Boston, wow, that's when really I felt it bad. And I used to get, my freshman year, used to get like, like once a week, I'd get a, a disparaging phone call from I don't know who. Somebody would call up. Same thing. Somebody, somebody knocking on, hey, Sanabria, somebody wants to talk to you on the phone. So I go to the pay, to the pay phone. And it was be somebody saying, go back to New York City, you freaking, you know, spick or whatever. And I go, uh, I remember the first time I heard it, I was taken aback. And, you know, I yelled out, who is this? And they hung up on me. And I walked back to my dorm room and it was David was there, my friend from high school. He goes, who is that? And I go, eh, no, it's just a fan. <laughs> then I told him later on. And he goes, damn, man. He goes, this is like crazy. You know, a couple of times in in South Boston, I, I, I remember one time very clearly, we I was at a diner with a friend of mine, Tommy Arsisto, who was from Hawaii. And they wouldn't service. 
And finally, Tommy spoke up. What's going on? How come, you know, our money is green and this, that, and the other. So this guy comes out from the back. And he he must have been the, the cook or something. He goes, what do you guys want? And I go, well, I wanted a hamburger. Tommy, what do you want? He goes, you know, spaghetti and meatballs or something like that, you know. And he goes, and he goes, all right, all right. So he goes back there. And I said, when he, he left, I said, Tommy, when he comes, when we they bring us the food, check the food, make sure they, because they, you know, they'll spit on it or whatever. They'll do whatever. Now, compared to what our African American brothers and sisters uh, went through down south, etc. It's not. It's really nothing compared to what they went through. But I have a. I have a, a unique empathy about what they went through, especially when, when I meet somebody who's older, who's African-American in their 80s, and I know that most of them probably have their parents or they migrated from down south to New York City. I, I can, I, I have an under, somewhat of an understanding of the horrors they went through in terms of mm -hmm. racism. Boston at that time was a very, it, it was bad. It was it was very and if you were a Yankee fan, forget it. <laughs> that 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 goes without saying. Yeah. On a much much happier note, can you tell me? Uh, I'm always intrigued by people who are in positions that 99.999 percent of the rest of us will never be in. Can you tell me, as someone who loved music right from the get go and musicians, what it's like those first times you are playing with your heroes like Tito Puente? It, it, again, you know, because uh, I was a person that that was weaned in, in a sense on in on, uh, in history from my father, I I would have to pinch myself, you know, and and, and put on a nice front of being cool, you know, <laughs> not, not not overreacting, but. Uh, I in my head I'd be going, oh my God, I'm playing with Tito Puente, you know, I'm playing with Mario Balzan, I'm playing with Dizzy Gillespie. I don't believe it. I'm playing with Chico Farrell, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, it it was uh and I and I uh I had a little bit of a taste of that when I was at a student at Berkeley because in my freshman year, since I had these skills that nobody had at the time at the school and the skills were that I could play hand drums from learning in the streets of New York City uh, playing Cuban rumba on congas in the streets and I played timbales and I played bongo I knew the, I had those skills that nobody else had I was assigned to the best ensemble at the school my freshman year which was the Michael Gibbs Chrome Waterfall Orchestra Michael Gibbs was the person that did the string arrangements for John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra uh, with the London Philharmonic when they recorded. So, and he did things for Pat Metheny, et cetera, et cetera. So that ensemble was made up of teachers and the best students. So there I am, and the the first rehearsal, there was a guitar player, and he had big hair, and he had, was wearing a lumberjack shirt. Second rehearsal, Great, uh, and, you know, I, I just kept quiet and I did my job and, and everything and everybody was fascinated by what I did because I'm bringing this cultural aspect that they didn't know anything about. 
to to this ensemble. And it was, I remember, it was in an ensemble room called E1, Ensemble Room 1, which was the biggest ensemble room. And there would be like 50 people outside the door watching because of who Michael Gibbs was and the ensemble. And they'd open the door so people, some people could walk in. And it was, so we had like a little audience. Anyway, this, the third week, he wasn't there, that guitar player. A new guitar player came in. That guitar player was Bill Frizzell, who would later on become very well-known in the jazz world. The bass player, Kermit Driscoll, afterwards I go to him, hey, whatever happened to the uh, guy with the big hair and the lumberjack shirt? I like the way he played. He was really good. He goes, oh, that guy? That was Pat Martini, man. <laughs> he just got signed to ECM Records. He's on a world tour. <laughs> so so there you go. Again, another one of those moments in my head. I'm going, oh, man, I'm from the, the kid from the Bronx. And I just was playing with Pat Martini. I didn't even know. know it. I knew who Pat Martini was, but I didn't know what he looked like. So And he was quiet. And he, everybody there was very professional. Um, and uh, and it was an interesting band because we did what we music, what we in what we call odd meters in music. Most music is in, you kind of, in four, one, two, three, four, one, three, four, or waltz tempo, one, two, three, one, two, three, but, or two, one, two, one. But this was stuff in like seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, things like that. Things that were pioneered by Dave Brubeck, the, later on Don Ellis, so I was a fan of Don Ellis because I had seen him where? Again, on TV. In this case, on PBS. So I knew who he was and I knew what he was about. And when he would bring that, and Michael Gibbs wrote in that kind of a style. And he, so when he would hand out the music and he said, can you come up with a, the music would say, like I have a bar five, a bar seven and a bar nine. He goes, Roberto, can you come up with a groove for that? He goes, sure. I can, you know, being from New York, which always got me in trouble. I said, yeah, I can count. <laughs> you know what? If you, you wouldn't be there unless you belong there, that's for sure. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it was, it was intense. I mean, it was like, sometimes I tell this story to people, they don't, if, depending on if who they know who Michael Gibbs is and Pat Metheny and others, but if they do know who it is, they will look. They look at me and I go, "How old are you?" You know, I, yeah. I was eighteen. And I go, "Oh my God, man, you're playing with those guys at that age." So it was a very gratifying experience. But I'm telling you, it was so strange for me because I thought everybody knew who Tito Puente was, who Machito was. The only person they knew from my culture was Santana. That's the only reference point anybody there had. The teachers, everybody. Nobody knew who those people were. And I was mortified and shocked. And I remember speaking to Charlie Palmieri, Eddie Palmieri's older brother, the virtuosic pianist, one time. He goes, Maestro, they don't know who you are, your brother is. He goes, listen, kid, once you drive up I-95, and you get past New Haven, Connecticut, people start going, Tito who? You know? <laughs> so it was a shock to me. And and but I was, in a sense, became like a cultural ambassador for the music because uh, people would ask me questions. People would knock on my door, hey, you the guy with the Latin records? Can I borrow some? I go, No, but you could come in and you could listen. And I, in my own primitive way, 
I would explain what was happening. I'd say things like, well, this is a style of Cuban music known as charanga. It has flute and violins. You're a Bronx guy, born and bred, and still, you've been there through thick and thin. Give us a, a take on the Bronx now with all the experiences that you've had in the past there. Well, I mean, for a short time, I lived in Queens, in Sunnyside, Queens, but I, I live now again in the Bronx. I'm back home, and, and it's an exciting time period because the Bronx has risen like a phoenix from the ashes. Uh, I encourage any of you who are watching this now who uh, grew up in the Bronx and left because of the fires and all that other stuff, that negative stuff that happened, to come back because you'll be very, very surprised at what's happening. Myself and my uh, incredible partner and wife, uh, Elena Martinez, the, the noted folklorist, cultural anthropologist, we run the Bronx Music Heritage Center and the forthcoming Bronx Music Hall, which is a 250-seat theater we're constructing that also has an outdoor plaza and an outdoor stage. And in the back, there's an 80-seat amphitheater as well. And we've been running the BMHC, the Bronx Music Heritage Center, which is an art gallery space for the last 10 years. And this new venue is opening up toward the end of this year. So it's, it's part of an incredible complex run by the Women's Housing Economic Development Corporation. So we encourage you to come back and see all of the great things that are happening in the Bronx, particularly in the South Bronx. You'll be, you'll be very surprised, you'll be very pleased, and you'll be very proud. Bobby, it's just always, I always learn something when I talk to you, and that's a beautiful thing. Thanks and, so much. And uh, the notion of spreading great music through the world in this new CD as well, you get points in life for that. Thanks so much, bud. And it's great to uh, see you again. And uh, wait, we got to break some bread at, at one of the great restaurants that we have in the Bronx soon, sooner than later. You're on. You're on. Bobby Sinabria. His new album is called Vox Humana by the Bobby Sinabria Multiverse Big Band. On Sunday, June 4th, Sinabria and his band will be in concert in a Latin jazz tribute to Louis Armstrong sponsored by the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation and the radio station WBGO's Kids Jazz Concert Series. The concert is, where else? In the Bronx. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.